tough thing. Well, good morning. I don't know if you may have noticed or not, but some of us are dressed a little different this morning. I have been uh, privileged to be in a discipleship group with some men. For the last two and a half months, we have been meeting together. We've been studying the Sermon on the Mount. They've uh, been finding ways to just turn up the heat a little bit in their lives and devotional studies and seeking to be a man after God's own heart. And so we spend some time together Sunday nights. We uh, spend an hour uh, in study and scripture and then sharing the stories of our lives. And uh, we have some tough stuff in our lives and we're trusting that to each other. And then uh, after we have that uh, time of sharing together, we go and we sweat in the sauna in my backyard for an hour. And so literally, we have collectively, uh, the eight of us, produced buckets of sweat together. And uh, we've had a lot of fun doing it. These guys have given a lot of time and uh, put a lot of trust in each other. And it's a godly thing. And I hope stuff like this continues to flourish and grow in our congregation. But guys, take off your jackets. Let those colors fly. I want you to see these men, church and give them a, a round of applause for the good work that they have been doing. Will you guys stand up? Stand up, Corey. Corey Sheeler's part of us, too. Uh, Jeremy Wright has been a part of this group. Thank you, you guys can have a seat. And uh, we have had a ball together, and uh, we're hoping that this kind of grows and continues. And. Uh, and we'll need uh, a whole new group of sweat virgins going forward uh, for next winter. And uh, we'll kind of, I see this as a seasonal thing that we'll uh, continue to encourage each other as men and build each other up in the Lord and try to be the, the men after God's own heart that he desires for us to be. So thanks guys for doing that with me. I greatly appreciate the time that we get to spend together on our Sunday mornings, and uh, I hope uh, that the relationships that you have here, the things that you hear talked about, the songs we sing, the prayers we pray, the sermons and teaching that you listen to, I hope it's a special part of your life, and it's reaching in there in some ways to challenge you, to encourage you, to bless you, to build you up because we are a people who need constant reminding. We need constant encouragement. We need to be constantly challenged. And we need to continually refocus our lives on our glorious Savior who remains among us in a very special way. So in our text today, it appears that we're dealing with another situation where certain freedoms were being claimed and pushed by a select group within the Corinthian church. And the problem Paul addresses now in chapter 11 has to do with issues of distraction in worship in the congregation. I think there is something about something, there's just about enough in this sermon to upset pretty much everyone in this room this morning. Let me just begin by saying that. It's been a hard sermon to put together. There have been countless trees cut down over the years uh, to make paper for books of controversy. And uh, these questions in uh, chapter 11, these 15 verses we're looking at, 
there's some tough stuff, and it's tough to understand. And so we have to hold this all a little bit more lightly and because uh, there, there's a lot of speculation that can be made into these things. I'll try to help clear up some of those um, questions as they arise. But because this text is a little bit different, I'm going to approach the sermon differently. I'm going to put all of our text from the morning out there. So I'm just going to read this entire section and uh, just kind of bomb you with it the way Paul would have, uh, this would have come across in the, in the first church uh, there in Corinth. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of every woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her hair cut off. But, if a di but it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved. Uh, then she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason that a man ought to have authority over his own head. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But, in, but everything comes from God. <coughs> Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. The reading of the Lord's Word. Any questions? So let's begin with some deductions that we can make, um, some things that we can begin to, to ask. Uh, this head covering issue has something to do with the conduct of husbands and wives in the public worship of the church together. For whatever, it seems like for whatever reason this was going about, some married women were no longer wearing their head coverings in worship, and it may have been a kind of statement of their newfound freedom in Christ. But the exercise of this freedom was somehow, a, it had become a distraction in their worship together. In the application of their freedom, whether the meaning is tied, uh, whatever the meaning tied to the head coverings, in practice, the focus was pulled off of God and onto an issue. We can make issues by our words, and we can sometimes make issues symbolically by the way we dress, or other, there's other ways we do this too. 
So the issue of head covering in this case does have something to do with gender differences between men and women, but more specifically, this was an issue between a married woman and her husband. So there's some ambiguity knowing how much of this would apply uh, to single women or women who are single again, uh, divorced, widowed, things like that. Uh, because whereas there are some general statements made about men and women in this text, the specific issues addressed concerns a husband and wife relationship expressed in worship. So let's look at Paul's argument to begin with. He has a clearly, made, whether or not we agree with every point, here is his clearly made argument for the covering of a married woman's head in worship. Paul appeals to an order seen in the relationship of Christ to man, of man to woman, of God to Christ. Paul appeals to socially acceptable norms regarding the headdress of men and women. Paul argues from the order in which man and women were created in Genesis. Paul makes an appeal to consider how these actions could affect angels. Paul appeals to the common practice of other churches. So it's a clearly made out argument that Paul brings forward. So let's begin in verse 2. I praise you for remembering me and everything and for holding to the traditions just as I passed them on to you. So I have eight questions that I raise from our text today. When we get to, as we work through, when we get to question eight, you'll know we're about done. Question one, what are these traditions that Paul is referring to? We don't fully know. You'll, you'll be hearing me say that a lot this morning. But these traditions would likely include what we call traditional acts of worship, the things that we include in our worship time. Uh, we have singing, we have prayers, we have a Lord's Supper, baptism sometimes is a part of what we do. We have typically uh, teaching and uh, preaching that happen as part of our worship, are part of our traditions. Churches have traditions. Some are more central and important, and some are more peripheral. There's the, just the way that we do things. Uh, whether a church has chairs or pews, that would be more peripheral. Uh, whether, and there, of course, you can think of things that would be a lot more central than that. And uh, all churches have traditions. And just because we come from a restoration movement and call ourselves a church of Christ, that doesn't mean we don't have traditions. We have tons of them. And uh, a tradition is a way of doing things. Uh, it's impossible not to have traditions. But traditions, they're not necessarily a bad thing, I would say. In fact, a tradition provides a lot of strength and structure and clarity. It's just the way we choose to do things. And some things are more flexible in the scriptures and, and some things are more central. <laughs> Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians. So then, brothers and sisters, stand firm and hold fast to the traditions we passed on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. <coughs> Paul is talking about modeled ways to live your life as a disciple of Jesus. He's appealing to common practices and things that were part of churches and church worship. All right, 11.3. 
but I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. The head of every woman is man. The head of Christ is God. So that question would be, what does the word head mean in this context? There are a few scholars who translate head as source, like the head of a river. So that there's a directional flow there, maybe. And that might sound a little less chauvinistic to modern ears. But I think most commentators, uh, they take the view that head does denote, denote some level of authority over, some responsibility to. You could say that man has a responsibility to Christ, woman has a responsibility to man, to man, and Christ <coughs> has a responsibility to God the Father. Sorry, I got a cough drop in here somewhere. <coughs> or I don't. Maybe it fell out of my pocket. I was all prepared and it's gone. My chair in my office just swallows things when I'm out of my pocket, so thank you, Norm. <coughs> I don't know why. I think I, I get so into the singing and I'm just like belting it out. And if I'd just be a little quieter in my singing, I'd do better, but I can't help it. I love to sing. So what does the word head mean in this context? It does denote, uh, most people agree, uh, who study this, a level of responsibility and authority. So that leads to another question then. What relationships have the greatest problems with submission and authority? Is it between God's headship over Christ? Or Christ's headship over man? Or man's headship over woman? So I just think, God, between God and Christ, you have the perfect with the perfect. Between Christ and man, you have uh, perfect with imperfect. Between man and woman, there's potential for imperfection on both sides of that equation. I would like to say that a lot of men just give lip service to the headship of Christ. Yeah, yeah, Christ is in charge. We'll say that on paper. But then we just go and do whatever we want. And especially we end up treating our wives in unchristlike ways many times. The more a husband becomes like Christ, the better your relationship is going to be with your wife. The more the wife becomes like Christ, the better your relationship is going to be with your husband. <coughs> Again, I don't think Paul is saying that a woman has to pass through a man to access Christ. I think this primarily has to do with a married woman showing respect to her husband, specifically in how it relates to uh, the church worship together. But our greatest example of love-based fulfillment of leadership roles and voluntary submission is within God himself, between the Father and the Son. Jesus does not have a hard time submitting to the authority of the Father. 
He says he's completely trustworthy and that you can rely on the Lord. You can trust him. The father, in turn, constantly defers to the son as well. He puts all things under him. He says, this, he's, he claims Jesus, this is my son, listen to him. That there is a, a mutual, mutuality in the submission within God himself. And that's the environment of love. And that needs to be the ultimate uh, defining characteristic of our marriages in Christ. Um, but when pride comes, when sin comes, when there's tainting of the relationships, uh, there's, there's the potential for submission, voluntary submission, to be a very difficult thing because of all of the ungodliness going on, potentially on both sides of the party. Does that make sense? All right, verse 4 and 5. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is the same as having her head shaved. Again, we don't know all that Paul has in mind here with this. We're so far removed from this original context that there's difficulty understanding some of these specifics. There are clearly gender-related roles of a husband and a wife in church worship. So that's about as much as I feel like we can say about that. So a question that might come up from this section, were women leading the congregation in prayer and prophecy in the early church? The short answer to that is yes. At least some of the married women were doing this in the Corinthian church. Apparently in the early church, individuals, either men or women, moved by God's Spirit, could lead the congregation through prayer or prophecy as a part of their corporate worship together. Paul didn't have a problem with women being involved in this way and even implies that this is the pattern that of all the churches where he was involved with. His problem was not that women were doing this, but the way they were going about this without a covering, which was a symbol of honor and respect, a recognition of their marriage covenant. So we have to hold this verse in a larger context of other verses. So just within 1 Corinthians, we hear things like every woman who prays and prophesies. It's just like, this is normal. You guys know this, but she needs to have that sign of authority. And then we hold that with chapter 14, which says women should remain silent in the churches. How do we hold all that together? There is a tension here, is there not? But I don't think necessarily a contradiction, and I hope that we can explore this more when we get to chapter 14. Here's the way one commentator put this. It would seem quite likely that the Corinthian women had concluded that, having been raised with Christ, 
their new position in Christ and their resultant freedom to participate in the worship by prayer and prophecy was incompatible with wearing a sign of submission to their husbands. Paul defends their right to pray and prophesy, but does not see it as doing away with the marital relation or that responsibility. Only at the resurrection will marital patterns be done away with completely. And we kind of, he references Matthew 22 there. James B. Hurley, man and woman in biblical perspective. All right, so we have that. Have I answered that question fully? No, I have not. Question five, what is prophecy in the early church? This text is just filled with all kinds of landmines for preachers. What is prophecy in the early church? There seems to have been a lot of prophesying going on in the early churches, happening uh, regularly, spontaneously sometimes. These prophecies, they involved both men and women, 1 Corinthians tells us. And it is one of the ways that the Holy Spirit would work in people to build up the entire congregation. And that Paul gets into this later and kind of talks about prophecies as superior to uh, things like speaking in tongues, which need specific interpretation. In fact, in Corinth, there were so many prophecies happening that Paul had to help them formulate some guidelines for a more orderly worship because this was happening so often, two or three at the most. So what are some general truths that we can say concerning prophecy? A prophecy always pointed to Christ. Prophecies especially involved elements of encouragement, consolation, and teaching or instruction. They probably involved scriptures applied to a current issue or situation in a church or even for individuals. This was a way that the body was building itself up in the early church. Question six, was Paul referring to an actual veil being worn or just the way the hair was worn or dressed? Again, we're not fully sure. Uh, there's some ambiguity that you could argue that either way. But I think most uh, uh, think that this situation relates to the way the hair was worn. And the idea is supported by a reference to the having one's head shaved in verse 6 and also to having long hair in verses 14 through 15. So somehow, uh, this sign of authority is being done away with. Maybe it was the specific style of the day where married women had their hair up. And then if you wore your hair down and it's long luxurious glory, you're announcing certain things maybe in that culture. Um, and so we don't know fully what, that, what Paul has in mind, but I think it has something do, to do with cultural norms for the way the hair was dressed. But if you want to wear a headdressing, there's that possibility that that was part of it as well. Uh, so nothing closes the door with that. A man ought not to cover his head 
since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Notice Paul doesn't say she's in the image of man, though. That was significant. Paul, Paul is following the Genesis pattern there. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. There's a special interrelatedness there and mutual dependence that when it's done in godlike ways, it can become very beautiful. The word glory here, it's virtually synonymous for the word honor, that you can use either of those. And I think honor is a better interpretation potentially. Ancient Greco-Roman culture, as well as Jewish cultures, they were honor-shame cultures. We are not an honor-shame culture here in the States in the same way today. So Paul is referring to a creation order as, where, as well as gender roles and appealing not to the exercise of rights, but appealing rather to what is going to bring the greatest honor. What is is going to keep the focus of worship on God the most? And what is going to be the most distracting? A man who behaves in godly ways and follows Christ, that honors God. A husband who treats his wife and his children as Christ treats the church, that brings honor to God. A woman who is married also has a special obligation to help her husband. And when she honors her marriage in voluntary submission to her husband, she recognizes her role as a wife and a mother in such a way that it also can bring glory to God. So Paul, let me just say, he's not making a value judgment. He's not saying that one sex is more valuable or important than the other. But Paul is making the argument that there are gender-based roles and norms initiated from creation, and when a husband and wife find ways to depend on each other, be tied together, interrelated with each other, and find ways to submit to one another in love, that has the potential to be a very beautiful and God-honoring thing. A healthy Christian marriage brings glory to God. And when you have either side of that equation between a husband and a wife not in it for the glory of God, that's when it gets a lot more difficult. Somehow, the head covering or hairstyle of a married woman, who, what she would wear in worship, it recognized and honored the marriage covenant. And when this covering is done away with, it was a a blatant and symbolic way to announce, hey, I'm free to do whatever I want. I'm available, maybe. And it could be interpreted in a lot of ways that were potentially not helpful for a church. All right. It is for this reason that a woman ought to have a sign of authority over her own head because of the angel's. Question number seven. That's question eight. Question number seven. What is the reference to angels? I lost a slide in there somewhere. What is that about? Angels? And uh, I think there are three contending possibilities. 
In Greek, the word for angel, it literally means messenger. So when messengers from other churches came and visited Corinth, they could potentially be confused by married women casting aside the symbol of their marriage, the symbol of their married woman authority uh, in relation to their husband. And they would be like, why, why is this happening in this church? This church, why is it doing things differently here? And that focus would be a distraction. That's one possibility. I think it's actually talking about angels. Possibility two, in Genesis 6, there's a story about angels that had sexual relations with women. So Paul's reference to uncovered women could be understood in a sense when a woman wears her hair down or whatever the case may be. It could be seen in the sense of uh, additional temptation out there and lack of respect, announcing her availability, uh, attempting angels kind of thing. So that is possible. I like possibility number three, which I think is most likely. The scriptures point to angels as messengers and servants of God. Messengers and servants of God, that's their, their role. Um, and they have special responsibility in, in re, or charges in regard to the ways that they interact with humanity. In Revelation, we find that there are angels associated with specific churches. And in Revelation 8.3, an angel mediates the prayers of God's people. Angels were said to be guardians and mediators of God's law or the scriptures in Galatians 3.19. So even though we don't fully understand uh, about angels and how do we go about talking about this, uh, angels are likely involved in our lives and in what is going on here as a church. It shouldn't surprise us that there is an angel assigned to the Eugene Church of Christ. Uh, no doubt, with a lot like us, this angel is overworked and kept very busy. Uh, this is speculative. But I would think that any angel associated with this church would be very interested in, in protecting and guarding the integrity of our worship to God. An angel of this church would be interested in keeping the door open to what the Holy Spirit desires to do among us. And in this case in Corinth, when certain women were casting aside the symbol of their marriage, these women were announcing with their actions and very likely their words, hey, I can do whatever I want now that I belong to Christ. In essence, it was a way to announce, it's our turn to run the show. And this would throw open a door for spiritual attack when the focus of the church is on individual rights and political moves rather than on God. And an angel trying to protect a church that leaves the front door open to the enemy through people's pride and arrogance, that angel would have a tough fight on its hands, I would surmise. Do these verses apply to us today? How do we understand this? Why does this matter? And this is where we'll end this morning.
All churches have to arrive at conclusions regarding what is a cultural specific practice. Was this tied to a specific uh, situation? Was this just for that specific time? Or what are these practices that are more central and more universal and transcend culture and time? Uh, We are always having to make that discernment call. Uh, Most women in our tradition no longer wear some kind of head covering. A lot of women in our churches have short hair. Most women in our churches have worn their hair braided and have worn gold jewelry. In our culture, a man with long hair is not inherently shameful. And it doesn't mean that a man has long hair, that he's uh, necessarily trying to act like a woman, although that does happen. And we no longer regularly practice a holy kiss for each other when we first see each other or greet each other. Um, Men and women don't typically pray and prophesy spontaneously in our worship services together. So there's differences going on. And we've made those calls by our tradition in different ways. And uh, this is something that we all in our generations have to constantly reevaluate before the Lord of what is going to bring the greatest honor and glory to God our Father. So just as an aside, in 11.14, when it says, does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? So let me tell you about the way the nature of things is working for Calvin Gruen. I'm losing my hair. My hairline is receding. And... uh, the very, of nature, the very nature of things, I think it shows that I would not necessarily make a very good long-haired blonde. <laughs> Doesn't the very nature of things tell you, Calvin, this should probably be a no-no for you? <laughs> All right. It's just my way of trying to lighten the mood a little bit with all of this. That's Haley sitting there, and she draped her ponytail over my head, and, and uh, Alicia snapped a picture. So, All right, some closing thoughts. I think as a church, we have a lot of freedom in how we understand and apply the Scriptures. Women tip, don't typically wear head coverings in church. Men, there's no one here trying to stop anyone from doing that. Sometimes we have other traditions. People have other backgrounds, and they come. I think it's a beautiful thing. They wear a head head covering. So even though we might not have that particular sign, married women still find ways to leave the door open and find ways to honor their husbands. And uh, I would say some of our most committed, some of our most talented, the the greatest giftings, and it's the women of this church, the smartest ones, uh, the level of talent, and uh, the ones who are maybe not in it at quite the same level, the ones who are way more timid, 
timid, the ones who are more awkward relationally, uh, maybe our giftings are different. A lot of times that's the men. And uh, when in a godly marriage, a woman honors her husband by leaving the door open in ways that allow him to grow into a spiritual leader and be a godly man. And that can be such a beautiful thing. Uh, in our church worship, men and women don't spontaneously pray and prophesy. And yet we do the work of prophecy when we encourage, when we console, when we teach one another in the name of Christ, and when we apply the scriptures to our real life circumstances and try to live them out. We don't greet each other with a holy kiss anymore, but we still find ways to greet each other with respect and affection. People tend to think that if we get all of the issues right, then we will fix the problems that we have, and then we'll grow and we'll flourish and there'll be more people coming, and we'll move out of the shadowed valleys and into greener pastures. But what I've seen is that a lot of churches, when they end up focusing on the issues, they stop focusing on God, and lo and behold, they discover that fixing the issues did not fix all of the problems because most of the problems are in our heart. It's not only by intentionally, we have to set aside the issues sometimes and be intentional about keeping our eyes fixed on what we need to be fixed on, which namely is focusing on our glorious Savior, that luminous Galilean who is among us in a special way, and we need to love him so much that it grows our love by the power of the Holy Spirit that our broken hearts are healed. It'll give us wisdom and guidance with any issues. As the Spirit leads us, we will be okay to change the things that need to be changed. As the Spirit's lead, we will be okay to let go of our agendas, our fixes, and our clever ideas and just love the Lord our God and the Lord's people with the spirit of sincerity and magnanimity. So the last thing I will say, how do we apply this as a church going forward? It goes back to chapter 10, verse 31. Whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And we put that up above and in front of everything. If you have needs for prayers in this church, uh, keep the Cruz family in mind and be praying for them. Uh, if you have other uh, uh, concerns, if you want to put the Lord on in baptism, uh, we always make an opportunity. You can come and find me up front here. And let's go ahead now and stand and sing together. <laughs>